Hey guys, good to see everybody here again. Another Zoom worship. Um, hopefully your week has been um, pretty fruitful, at least, if not safe. And um, at least uh, as I look at the weather, I think things are going to start warming up again. So uh, that's, that's, I guess that's good news, right? Anyways, <clears throat> um, so I got a question. Um, did you know that we actually have a finance committee, right? Uh, we do, we do. And, um, you know, technically our elder Leeson, he, he's our treasurer. And so he kind of oversees that overall. And, and it doesn't require a, a lot of manpower, but it does require some help. Amy's there and she helps uh, organizing the finances and making reports. And, and every week, uh, because we, when we did worship in person, uh, there was people that would um, take the money or take the offering and count it. And so we need counters. And so, they prepare budget reports once a year, at least for the church. Um, they collect, they count, they deposit. And so uh, it is It is a committee. It's, it's a ministry committee. Um, and, you know, to be very honest, it's an important one because I don't really know, you know, how much goes in or comes out all the time. Uh, I don't know who gives what or how much. I, I don't know the details. No, I trust uh, you know, the treasurer and this committee to, to take care of those things. Um, and so just want to thank you for continuing to be able to support the church in any way you can and to thank the committee and to, you know, thank the treasurer and Leeson to uh, continue to serve uh, in this way because it's an important committee. And this is what we're doing. As you can tell, um, every week we've been looking at some of the various ministries in our church that require um, some work and some ministry help. And uh, what we've been doing is going to going over some of these things so that we could reboot a lot of these things and prepare for a reopening and to do it to, to do it well. And like I say, for every ministry committee, you know, this is an important one, but but, you know, finance committee is is important, even though you don't hear too much about it all the time. It is important because after all, it's money. Right. Uh, it's money. And everyone knows money is important. It's important. And to be honest, sometimes it's 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 too important. And and so, you know, anytime we talk about money in the church, it's a sensitive issue. And so I don't really talk about it too much, maybe once a year. And so this will be it for for this year, probably. But uh, we're addressing not only the church and, and, and how we handle our finances, but also I want to take this passage and to look at how I think we're encouraged to handle our finances as individuals, uh, as families. Jesus here in our passage, he gives this parable to his disciples and to his followers and also to the listening religious leaders there. And I think from this passage, I see three points. At least I want to give you three things to think about. He wants his dis disciples, he wants his followers to be radically challenged in at least three areas, their view of wealth, their view of how they handle their wealth, and their view of God. In this passage, I see three challenges that we have today, three things that are very hard for many of us here, especially living in this country, their view of wealth, their view of how they handle their wealth, and their view of God. And so here's the first point here. Uh, we're challenged here, I think, by their view of wealth. And what is your view of wealth? How do you perceive your, your finances, uh, the, the material blessings that we all get to enjoy? 
Um, how do you see it? What is your view of wealth? And one of the things that I see here that we're talking about here as we look at this uh, passage is about this manager who's in fact a steward. And the way, one of the ways we're challenged to look at our finances and to view our wealth and our, even our material wealth is through the eyes of a steward. Stewardship. Now, what is stewardship? Well, stewardship, it, it doesn't mean the practice of being a good flight attendant or on an airplane. If you look up the word stewardship, stewardship basically means someone who manages property or other affairs for someone else. And so if you've heard this word before, for Christians, you know, it's somewhat of a pious sort of jargon. Usually it means that, you know, being a good steward means that we take good care of, of what we give to the church and, and to the Lord's work. And so you might think that this sermon, immediately you're thinking, well, this sermon, Pastor Francis is going to talk about giving to the church and giving faithfully, uh, or maybe just giving more to the church. But it's not. It's not. Because here's the thing. Christian stewardship is not just about what's given to God or to the church. Christian stewardship is about everything else we have as well. It's not just about that three, five, or even 10% of what we give in our contributions and our offerings to the church or to its ministries. But it's also about the rest of the 90%. And it's not even just about material wealth, but can also be about all the resources we have, not just money, but our time, our talent, our effort. In other words, stewardship is really all about life. It's all of life. You see, there's a basic fundamental truth that we all need to really remind ourselves, and that is this. As a Christian, we confess Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And so stewardship is really what you do after you say, I believe in Jesus as my Lord. A steward is what you are once you confess that Jesus Christ is your Lord. Because once you say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, everything that follows after that is an expression of his lordship in your life. And so faithful stewardship and our view towards even our wealth practically means acknowledging his lordship. And that means knowing that he's the Lord of everything, that he's the owner of everything ultimately, and that he is ultimately the source of everything. Now, that's a lot, isn't it? You know, when I was younger um, and a little more, I guess, uh, mischievous, uh, me and the friends, friends of mine, we would go to the movies and I would always buy a pack of M&Ms and uh, take them to the theater as the movie began. And as the movie began, um, what I would do is as I would eat my M&Ms, I would kind of throw them into the front uh, of the, uh, you know, the theater and, you know, just randomly hit people in the dark. And of course, they wouldn't know who it was. And I always thought it was kind of funny. And one of my friends said to me, you know, Francis, that's such a waste of M&Ms. You know, you shouldn't do that. And I would respond, it's not your M&Ms, right? It's mine. I bought it. So I could do whatever I want, right? And so I continue to do it. You know, I'm not saying you should do that, but that mentality hasn't really changed for many of us. When you look at your possessions, when you look at your own M&Ms, I guess you could say, what do you say? Do you say, this is mine? Mine, mine, mine. Or do you say, all that I have belongs to the Lord? All that I have belongs to the Lord. And that's a difference. If you take stewardship and the idea of stewardship seriously, your view of wealth becomes that. 
all that I have belongs to the Lord. And so it's a perspective or it's a view of wealth. And it's a challenge that I think we need to consider as we live and as we enjoy the things that we have. So that's the first point. But the second point is this. It's not only a challenge here in terms of our view of wealth, but it's also a challenge in how we handle that wealth. And this is where we focus a little bit more here in our parable that Jesus gives here. And as we begin our parable, you hear about this manager who eventually gets fired because he mishandles his boss's profits or his money. And there are two noteworthy points we're given about this manager or this steward, you could say, his steward's conduct. On the one hand, this steward or this manager, he is unfaithful. He is dishonest, right? But on the other hand, he's commended as being shrewd, as being shrewd. And so in verse one, we, we read here that he's been charged with wasting his possessions. So what you got here is, this, as Jesus tells a story about this manager who handles his boss's finances, he's basically an embezzler. He, he's an embezzler wasting his boss's possessions. And so the manager or the boss finds out. And so in verse two, he tells this manager, turn in your account of your management for you can no longer be manager, right? He's basically fired. And so what this manager does, he says to himself, well, what am I going to do? I'm going to be fired from my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. How am I going to take care of my livelihood in the future? And in verse four, we're told that he's decided what to do so that when he's removed or when he's fired, that other people might receive him into their houses. Okay. So what does he do? He comes up with this plan and he continues to cheat his master by reducing the debt of his clients. It's not his money. And the debt that is owed to his master is not his debt. It's other people's debt. It's other people's money. But he comes up with this scheme so that after he gets fired, he gets to provide for himself a livelihood by sort of making connections with people. And so we're told in verse 6, the first debtor's debt, he reduced it by half. And then in verse 7, we're told that he reduced another person's debt by a quarter, right? And so basically, he's coming up this plan to sort of network with people that he could connect with by giving them a favorable option, an unjust and, uh, you know, dishonest favorable option, to, you know, to say the least. But he does this so that once he gets fired, he'll have friends that he could go to for help after he gets fired. Okay. So this is an interesting parable here because this is Jesus who's talking about this guy. And I want you to notice what's really interesting in this passage is if you notice in verse 8, the master knows what's going on. He knows what's going on. But in verse 8, he says this, or the, 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 the verse says this, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Notice this, that in this passage or in this verse, he's still called a dishonest manager. He's dishonest, but he is praised. He is commended for his shrewdness. You know, what does that word shrewd mean? It's one of those words that almost sounds sort of sinister, but it, it really isn't. In the Hebrew, the word shrewd literally means that you've shown that you've wrestled with something, that you've thought things through, you've looked at the pros and cons, and then you chose the best choice. And practically then, being shrewd has two parts, the ability to assess your circumstances, and then the ability to prepare for the future. 
And we see here in our parable here, or in our passage, that our manager has both of these components in our parable. He quickly assesses his circumstances. He realizes that he will have to give an account for his actions and that he's going to be fired. And so he says in verse three, what am I going to do since my master is going to take my job away from me? He's not stupid. He's smart. He's savvy. Okay. We could say he knows his limitations. He says in verse three, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm, I'm ashamed to, ashamed to beg. And so he makes plans for the future. And in verse four, he says, I've decided what to do. But the thing is, his plan is dishonest. It's unjust, right? But what is ironic is that even Jesus commends him for being shrewd in verse eight. And you've got to ask the question then, if you think about this, what in the world is Jesus doing praising, commending an embezzler? Why would you want to hold up this guy, this dishonest, unjust manager, a guy who ripped off his boss's profits as a great example of stewardship? Why would you do that? What, what, what's Jesus thinking? And the key to understanding this passage here is this. There's an irony here. And if you look at verse 8, there's a contrast that Jesus makes at the end of verse 8. He says in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then what does he say? For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The irony of this parable hinges on Jesus' designation of the sons of this generation, or literally the sons of this world, as opposed to, or in contrast to, the sons of light, verse 8. This world, this age, this eon, this, this existence, that's what he's saying. And so what does he mean by these, these designations? Well, the sons of this generation, or this world, are simply people who live according to the principles of this world here and now, this generation, this age here and now. Sons of this world are people who are simply characterized by the attributes or the goals of, of, of this world. They're, they're people who find their whole life bound up only in this present world. By contrast, when Jesus says people of light or the sons of light, they're characterized by attributes, goals, and principles of the light. You remember in the Gospel of John chapter 8, Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so these people are characterized by the light of life, the sons of light. That's what he means. The light of salvation, the light of Jesus Christ. And so the sons of light or people of light have their goals, their destiny, their agendas, ultimately, okay, not in this present world, but in something more than this world in the world to come. But do you see the contrast here? Jesus says sons of this generation or sons of this world as opposed to the sons of light. And the question that we've got to ask and that I think he's asking is this, which one are you? Which one do you consider yourself? Which designation do you fit under? Are you a son of the world or a son of this light? And, or to put it functionally, to put it more practically, when it comes to finances, when it comes to material wealth, or possessions, what principles, what desires, what agendas are ultimately guiding you? Now, let's be clear. This passage, this sermon is not about being rich or being poor and what's more Christian, okay? 
it's not to make anyone feel guilty about having a lot of wealth, nor is it about trying to make you feel better if you don't have a lot of wealth. I mean, there are other passages you can look at for those things, but in this passage where Jesus compares sons of light with the sons of the world, here's the point. Whatever you are, both may have wealth in this world, and both ought to desire to be wise or smart or shrewd with that wealth. But the difference, the contrast is that they will be radically different on how they will actually manage or handle their earthly wealth. See, this is the second point. How do we handle our earthly wealth? Because they're coming from radically different places with radically different values and different principles. Christian or not, functionally speaking, when all you live for is just here and now in this world, then of course, things like money, they become ultimate. They're not just important, it's ultimate. Because after all, it, after all if this world is it, As they say, money makes the world go round, and then money becomes everything. But if there is another world, if there is something more than just this world that we live in, a world to come, and that world is it, and you start living for that perspective, then nothing in this world, as important or legitimate as it is, can be ultimate. And money just becomes money. The weird thing here in our passage is this. The irony of this parable is that it's the dishonest manager, a son of this world, who is commended for being more shrewd, more savvy, more smart than the sons of light. Isn't that interesting? Just as an aside, it's interesting to point out that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're going to be good at everything. And even in this passage, the Bible recognizes that there are plenty of things that non-Christians do really well, oftentimes a lot better than Christians can. In fact, being Christian has nothing to do with it. But in this parable, it's a son of this world who is more shrewd, more savvy, in living his life for this world than those who are called the sons of light, who are called the people of God, who ought to live their life for something more than just this world. Do you see where the point Jesus is making? The point here is not to praise this guy's dishonesty. Of course, he's not praising the dishonesty of men. But Jesus' point here is to show that even worldly people are wiser and more consistent than the Pharisees and the disciples and the religious people in their day in their approach to how they handle their wealth. Jesus here is not rebuking the son of this world, and he's saying, look, don't be like this manager. He's a dishonest person. Don't be like him. That's wrong. No, he's rebuking the sons of light. He's rebuking us those of us who confess Christ. And he's saying that the people of light, right, those who confess Jesus Christ, that there is more than just this world, that we don't deal shrewdly enough with our own confessed beliefs, verse 8. That we don't act smart, wise, or savvy enough in conducting our lives with the view of something more than just this world. See, this is more than just about Christians doing things by the book as Christians, making sure that we dot our I's and cross our T's. 
it's more intentional than that. So you see, this dishonest manager, even though his treasure is limited just to this fallen world, destined to fall away, look at how intentional, look at how tenaciously, look at how resourcefully, prudently, shrewdly he goes after them. And so the sons of light, whose treasure ought to be in heaven, therefore should also tenaciously, resourcefully, prudently, and surely go after his. And yet, even though Christians are so immeasurably rich beyond their wildest imaginations with the treasures of heaven, according to the Bible, functionally or practically speaking, what Jesus is saying is that their heart is just not there. And what Jesus is doing is that he is rebuking his disciples and all professed Christians, for that matter, with living their life in this world as if we had no treasure in heaven. Living as if all we have and all that matter is simply just here and now. And that's how we handle our wealth. And so ironically, in this parable, it's like the blind who is teaching those with sight how to live. John Calvin says with this commentary on, on this passage, he says, quote, The ungodly and worldly men are more industrious and skillful in conducting the affairs of this fading life than the children of God are anxious to obtain the heavenly or the eternal life or careful to make it the subject of their study and meditation, end quote. Jesus uses this parable, this ironic parable, as an indictment, a rebuke to his disciples to take more seriously their faith in their present circumstances and to more shrewdly go after their, go after their eternal treasure or heaven in life. Here's a question that we need to ask ourselves practically. How do you handle whatever wealth you have? your possessions, your finance, whatever it is, how do you really handle it? Does using your wealth say to those who look at you, wow, you really care more than just this world? Or does the way you use your finances, wealth, does it simply say, well, you know, you just live for here and now, right? For just this world only. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think Jesus is saying, therefore, you should never, you know, take care of your family with your finances or your wealth or provide leisure or enjoyment or the blessings that we get to do or go on vacation. You know, by all means, I think that's the blessings that we have that God gives uh, by his grace and the way we have. But is it just that? I think that's what he's saying. Look, I know many of you, all of you, actually, and some of you, you are very savvy. You are gifted in working things out, in trying to maximize your return into whatever investment you put in, whether it's energy, effort, time, or finances. You are very good at that. You're, you're what we call shrewd or savvy, and you're gifted in that. But imagine this. Imagine if you were to use that gift more particularly for the kingdom of God, for the church. What would that look like? You know, I, 
went to a, a little mission trip some years ago, a while back uh, in Africa, and we visited this little town called Garissa. And um, don't know what it's like now, but back then it, it was pretty beat up. It, it was pretty ghetto. And, you know, we had to stop by off of, at a rest area to use the restroom in this old beaten up, broken down building and walk up five, five or six like flights of stairs just to use a bathroom and every floor it, there was people there in the hallways. It, it was pretty scary. Uh, it's pretty hardcore uh, Muslim there. I think we looked and just out of place, a bunch of Asians, um, and um, they probably knew we weren't, you know, you know, Muslims, and 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 uh, it, it was pretty frightening. But the missionary there who brought us to this town, he ministered uh, to Somalians who are actually sort of an outcast version of the locals there, and they live basically in the bush area in the desert. And so we camped out there, and one of the amazing things about this missionary was that. He, as, he was actually able to build a little church building. It's probably the size of a shack, but it was, it's literally, it's a, it's, a little, it's a little building, a room, in fact, where he gets to meet with uh, the locals there, you know, who are able to come in and listen to him talk or to, to do a lesson or some sort. But the thing is, it is almost unheard of, impossible for any missionary or Christian to kind of do that and just set up camp in that place in Greece, it would, it was almost impossible. I'm, I'm thinking this guy, well, he must be a godly man because he's done this, you know, and he, he fundraises or he goes around, you know, everywhere. He's, he's a first generation kind of Korean guy, but he fundraised and he gained all this money. Uh, and I'm thinking, well, you know, obviously it's, it's a worthy cause as a Christian, I would think so that you're actually building a church in place where you can't really do that. And he's doing it. And so I'm thinking, wow, he must be really, you know, good with what he's doing. But the thing is, uh, you know, soon after that little trip, he brought us to a place and it was the house of an Arab. And so this Arabian guy who's very wealthy, uh, the missionary brought us to have dinner with him. And I noticed this, that this missionary bought cases of wine, cases of good wine to this Arab. And he straight up told us that he used the missionary funds to buy wine just to bring to this guy, this Arab, who's not even African, right? And so I'm thinking, like, wait a minute, that, that doesn't seem right. You know, people are supporting you to, to, to you, know, you know, do missions. You know, you should be, like, using that finance to, like, buy Bibles or, like, you know, material for building or something. But he, he brought cases of wine to this Arab. And I couldn't understand what it was. And I'm thinking, you know what, this, this guy, maybe he's not legit. You know, what's he doing? Just, you know, having dinner with this Arab, you know, and I'm thinking, you know what, just to be sure, you know, not every pastor or missionary is legit. Okay. And I'm thinking this isn't, you know, I'm not sure about this. And then later on, we had lunch with, with one of the chief of the locals in, in Garissa and he bought him all this Korean food. And he's just basically, you know, having lunch with this Korean, this with Korean food with this with this chief, you know, of, of this local uh, tribe that that he was, he was actually connecting with. And I'm thinking, this is where funds are going. And and I felt like that's not a very good steward of, of what he's doing. But he later on told me this: that the only reason he was able to build a church in that place, right, in a Muslim community, and be accepted into that community was two things. One. It's because he had a relationship with the chief by spending money on him and buying lunch. And so he uses funds for that. But two, because he promised the chief that he would build a water system on his land. And the Arab 
his business was building water systems. And so he connected with the Arab uh, and getting good with him by spending money with him or for him to make that connection so he could have him build a water system in this place and make this relationship with this chief good so that they allowed him to come on to their land and do whatever he wanted to do. That's pretty savvy, I think, for a missionary. And I thought that's what maybe he's gifted at, because I could never do that. What does it look like for you? How do you handle your finances? Well, <clears throat> let me just give you one application. <clears throat> we'll end it here. In Luke chapter 16, <clears throat> in our passage, he says this. Jesus says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into their eternal dwellings. How does Christian stewardship look like? What does it look like? Two things. The key to faithful stewardship is two things. Number one, that we use our money knowing that it is a source of righteousness. And secondly, knowing that it will fail. You know, uh, notice the force of Jesus' words here. He says this, use your finances, wealth, to make friends so that when it fails, notice the force of his words, not if it fails, but when it fails. You know, if I dream of winning the lottery sometimes like many of you do, but the truth is, deep down, I know it can't buy life. It can't buy happiness in this life, nor in the next to come. Now, I'm going to be very honest. I'd like to try to buy that happiness if I won the lottery, but ultimately, I don't think it will. And so Jesus is saying that we need to use money knowing that it will fail. But what's the specific purpose? And he says there in verse 9, so that we might make friends for ourselves. Now, what he's saying there is not saying, well, you can buy friends with a lot of money, right? But think about this. What did the unjust manager do? He cheated his boss. Why? So that in verse 4, the people might receive him into their houses. What does Jesus say here in verse 9? He says, make friends with your wealth. Why? So that when it fails, the people may receive you into their eternal dwellings. And so the idea here that Jesus is trying to say is this. The idea of friends and making friends is something important in the Bible. When you look at James chapter 4, verse 4, James says this, that friendship with the world means enmity with God. Okay? And so really what Jesus is talking about, he's implying this in the text, that when he says, make friends with your wealth, he's saying, making, make those who are not friends into friends. And this is a good segue into missions, because actually next week we'll be talking a little bit more about missions. But what Jesus is saying is that one of the ways that you and I can be a good steward of our finances, as we think about not just this world, but the world to come, is that we use our wealth to win over enemies of God and make them into friends of God. That's just one way that you could use your earthly wealth as a son of light. That when we give our finances, our effort, our strength to church, to ministries, to pastors, to missionaries, 
to do the work of gospel ministry. They preach the gospel to people. They hold out the word of life. They call sinners to repentance and to life, and they put their faith in Christ. Enemies of God, then, can become friends of God through the message of the gospel. And so Jesus Christ here is saying this, that we make friends out of enemies with our faithful stewardship of our wealth and our finances in the church as well as outside the church. So that one day when we enter into glory, we will see the friends that we've made in life who now receive us as we enter into our eternal dwelling place. Can you imagine this? Some of us, I know we support our missions in Cambodia, and I know we want to expand that later on to some places more, but at least for now, whatever you're able to give, I'm sure they're thankful, but you're not sure where that goes. And maybe you feel like, you know, you're not giving that much anyway, so maybe it doesn't really matter. At least you're doing something. But by our support, whatever that is, they're able to do in Cambodia, the things that we do here, they're able to minister to people who are hurting, to people who are suffering, to people who are oppressed, to people who need to hear the gospel. And one day, possibly, when we go to heaven, when we see them, you may meet a Cambodian who might come up to you and say, thank you for supporting that missionary or that ministry. Because without that, I would not be here with you. Can you imagine that? that we've made friends as we enter into our dwelling place. And so there here you have it in this passage. Basically, there's a view of wealth. We understand his lordship. How do you see that? Secondly, a view of how you handle it, that we ought to be more shrewd as sons of light, just as the sons of this world. Now, here's the third point. How do I become like that? Okay. How do I look at my finances under God's lordship? How do I handle it in a way that I really want to do things in a way that thinks about more than just me in this world. You know, how do I get there? And here's the third point. It's your view of God. It's your view of God. And it's found here in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's a hard word, isn't it? You cannot serve God and money. And this is why I will never win the lottery, because God knows that if I ever won the lottery, I will probably love money a lot more than God. And I would not be here talking to you. But this is not about having a lot of money or having a little of money. It's about loving God. You can have very little finance, very little material wealth, and still be enslaved, still idolize, still serve and love money and wealth more than God. And you can have a whole lot of money and a whole lot of wealth, but it's possible to still love God even more. The problem, as one Puritan said, is this, quote, our problem is that we love the world and we use the Lord. But we've got it completely backwards. We need to love the Lord and use the world. In other words, the resources that God has given to us, those are simply means to be used. But the thing that we ought to really love is the Lord. And this is the key, that our view of God, we will never be able to live, as Jesus is saying, with our wealth. We will never be able to let go of our wealth and give with this kind of view towards treasure in heaven until you realize that your real treasure in heaven is Jesus Christ himself. Until you treasure him. 
You know, Romans chapter 5, this is what Jesus did. Paul says that while you were an enemy, you were reconciled to God through the death of his son. John chapter 15, this is what Jesus says. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Do you see the point here? We were enemies, and now we've become friends. All because, not because of some dishonest manager who was shrewd, but because it was our Jesus Christ, and he was shrewd. From the very beginning, he had you in mind. He planned it from the very beginning to use all of his riches and power and wealth and his resources, even his own life to endure the cross, to despise the shame. He was able to give it all away in order to make enemies, us, into his friends and receive us into his home. And that's why we treasure him. That's why we live for him. That's why you can't have two masters. You hate one or love the other, but you can't serve both God and money. And so, you know, as we think about serving, as we think about the finance committee, we need people to serve in that committee because we want to make sure that the church is handling its finances in a good way. Not just buy the books, but also to do it surely, to do it wisely, to maximize our blessings uh, that the God gives us, the heavenly and even spiritual ones. But also, I mean, I challenge you personally, individually, to think about your stewardship, to think about your view of wealth under his lordship, to think about how you handle that wealth with the world to come, your eternal destiny, and to think about your view of God and what he's done for you and why you should. Let's take some time to pray as we think about these things and thank God for the things that we've been given. But let's also pray that God will help us to be wise, shrewd, but also desire as sons and daughters of light to pursue him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.